Amen. We are this morning at the conclusion of a very brief sermon series through the letter of Jude, the fifth of five messages this morning. This one has come and gone quickly for me. I don't know if you feel the same way. I've been very grateful for this letter as we've made our time through it together. Just a few comments by way of introduction before we turn to the last two verses, the doxology, these soaring words of praise to God. There are lots of assuring and hope-giving words contained in the scriptures. But here's the thing about that. None of those assuring, hope-giving words have anything directly to do with us. They have everything to do with God. They have everything to do with his faithfulness, with his love, his grace, his promises. You know, like I know, that if our hope in any way depends upon anything in us or done by us, we don't have any hope, that is. So we thank God for his word, and we thank God for his promise, and may he fix our souls upon it this morning. One of my goals is the the man who preaches God's word most frequently here at CBC, is to help us see over and over again that this book is about redemption. It is about God. It is about the great salvation that he has planned and accomplished and applied all to the praise of his glorious grace. Thank God for the consistent single, above all, consistent testimony of the scriptures that God has saved a people through Jesus Christ. And that we, those of us who have been united to Christ by faith, we will finally be saved and we will dwell with the Lord forever. With that in mind, open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Jude 24. For those of you who may be here for the first time today in this sermon series, don't worry about that. Maybe you've read the letter of Jude before, maybe not. I'm going to give a brief summary of the first 23 verses as you're making your way. Jude begins the letter with a greeting, but this greeting is more than just saying hello. He is affirming these Christians in Christ Jesus. He is pointing them to the love of God for them the eternal, effectual call of God on their lives. And he's pointing them to Christ who is keeping them. We've considered a number of times that that is how the apostles always write to the saints. They ground and affirm Christians in Christ Jesus and then in and under Christ consider how we are to then live in the church. This letter is no different. Jude indicates, beginning in verse 3, that he had intended originally to write to these Christians about their common salvation, but that there are things going on that have prompted him to write something else. He mentions certain people who have crept into the church unnoticed that are a danger to this congregation. These people, says Jude, they twist the gospel. They pervert the grace of God to do what they want to do. They pervert the grace of God so that sinning is now okay. They follow their own wicked desires, and that is what drives them. They grumble. 
They're not satisfied with anything. They boast in their sin. They manipulate other people. They curse and mock the things of God and cause division in the church. Jude writes so that these Christians in this congregation would be more aware of these certain people. He writes to exhort them to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints by the apostles. Jude's clear about these certain people, scoffers, he refers to them. He's clear that their way of life will ruin them. It will not end well. And so in that sense, it serves as a caution and a warning to these believers. We ought not go that way. Jude also encourages and exhorts the saints to build one another up in the faith and to keep themselves together in the love of God as they look to and anticipate the return of Christ. He exhorts them to watch over one another, showing mercy to those who doubt, snatching some out of the fire, he says, like literally grabbing people as they would seek to run off into sin. And then also restoring others with gentleness, even as they take great care to not fall into sin themselves. So that's the 23 verses of Jude. It's important that we would understand and see for our time together today as we're looking at the very end of the letter. Jude began by affirming the saints in Christ by reminding them of the call of God and the love of God and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And now today he's going to end the letter with soaring words of praise to God in Christ. And these words of praise, yet again, we will see, are clearly meant to ground and comfort these Christians, these saints in the church. God is the one who is able to keep them. Jesus is, in fact, mighty to save. And God, therefore, is worthy of praise. Saints, God's word is a treasure. May we feel and know that this morning. And let's look to it and read it together now. Jude 24 and 25. This is God's word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. There are two verses in our passage today, and so we're going to take them effectively one at a time. I don't really have a formal outline for us, though if you're the kind of person that can't handle that, then two verses, two points, right? Two verses, two parts, if that helps you think it through. Verse 24, we're going to spend some time here. So settle in and let's think and reason together according to the scriptures. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What a sentence. We're going to break that sentence apart, pull phrases apart, and think together. God is able to keep us from stumbling. You know, in God's providence, as we're learning the scriptures and as we're learning the faith and growing in the faith, it's interesting how in seasons of our lives, certain verses and certain passages just keep popping up. You see them everywhere. Psalm 37 verses 23 and 4 is one of those for me right now. So whenever we see these words or when I saw these words this week and I'm thinking about them, God is able to keep us from stumbling immediately. These words from the psalmist, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. 
for the Lord upholds his hand. In a nutshell, saints, that is what we're talking about here. God is able to keep us from stumbling. We may fall, but we will not be cast headlong because God has us. And it's a good thing that God has us and that he is the one who will keep us from ultimately falling and being cast headlong because, as we all know, painfully at times know, we are weak, not strong. We are insufficient, not sufficient for these things. And even, perhaps in a more offensive way, to our pride, Lest we get it twisted, none of us are good in and of ourselves. There is nothing in the flesh based upon which we could have confidence. There is no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. None who does good, not even one. God looked and saw that the thoughts and the inclinations of man's heart was only evil continually. And therefore, we are in need of help. We are in need of a Savior. Paul, even in writing about the ministry of the apostles, wrote these words. Not that we, the apostles, are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul goes on to talk about how the apostles are simply jars of clay that contain the treasure of Christ. It's true of all of us. We are in this flesh, we are wasting away. We experience all kinds of affliction, but God is preparing for us and preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond our comprehension. We are people, again, passages that come up all the time. We are people who want, because we have been united to Christ by faith, because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, we are alive now. We are people who want to do good. We are people who see God's law and say it's good. We want to follow it. We want to live in light of it. We want to obey God. And yet, at times, we find ourselves failing. The good we want to do, we don't do. The evil that we don't want to do, we do. And we grieve and lament all of it. The spirit and our flesh are waging war against each other. They're opposed to one another to keep us doing, to keep us, excuse me, from doing what we want to do. Galatians 5, 17. We are of flesh and blood. And as the writer to Hebrews says, we live in fear of death, in bondage to the devil who has the power of death. Who will set us free? We need a rescuer. And praise be to God that Christ is he. We're not the right man on our side. We sung of him a moment ago. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, the Lord of hosts is his name from age to age, the same. And that one, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is the one who has told us that no one can take us out of his hands, is the one who has said that no one will take us out of his Father's hands, is the one who has promised us that he will raise us up with him on the last day and that he will take us to be with him where he is for eternity. It's what he said, and he keeps his promises. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not suffering, not trial, not pain, not tribulation, not wickedness, not even sin. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the one who is faithful to complete the good work that he has begun in us. Then there are the words of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He is able to keep us from stumbling. And our God is the one who works in and through weakness. Again, the words of the apostles. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, writes of this thorn in the flesh that he has. We don't know what it was. Thank God we don't, actually. Because if we knew what it was, we would probably draw ridiculous conclusions about it. But given that we know that it's a weakness, that it's definitely something that he doesn't like, he wants it to be removed. He pleads with God to take it away. It's a hindrance to him from his perspective. What is Christ's response to him? As he pleads, take this away. Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's hard to not read those words and think that, man, we are so prone to miss it, to miss the point, to look for God in all the wrong places. We look for him in all the things that are shiny and obviously glorious and powerful, we think we're doing well when we're on cruise control and everything is on the up and up. And God says, you don't understand. I work in weakness. It's where I do my best work. When you're weak, I'm strong. Where you're insufficient, I am sufficient. Where you are unable, I am mighty and able to save. Praise God. The Lord is able to keep us from stumbling. Next piece of this wonderful verse, though. God will present us blameless before the presence of his glory. God will present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1. We heard these words read earlier. We're going to listen to them one more time, just a couple of these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By every blessing, he means every blessing even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God did not, in love and grace and mercy, choose us because we were something. We were not anything. He chose us in love so that we might be something. Holy, blameless, pure, in his presence evermore. It's the goal of God's plan. 
Romans 8, 28 to 30, well-known verses to many. A number of you probably have them on your refrigerator. There's no shame in that. A lot of times, though, we rip Romans 8, 28 out of the context. We often talk about Romans 8, 30, you know, the golden chain, appropriately called that. Those whom he foreknew, you know, he's predestined. All this, those whom he calls, he justifies, those whom he justifies, he glorifies, all this is connected. You know, the predestination, the call, the justification, the glorification, it's all there. Praise the Lord for that. We will be rescued. We often skip over verse 29. Reads this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to be presented pure and blameless. What does that mean? It means that we will be like Christ. It's the plan of God. The Apostle John writes the same thing. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And if you sit here this morning and you're like, brother, that sounds fantastic, but I can't fathom that I will be like Christ. I'm with you. And maybe you sit there this morning and you think, but how in the world could that ever happen? How could I be like Christ? Well, beloved, take heart because you're not going to be the one to do it. God is the one who will do it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people say amen and yes, may that be. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's a good word if I've ever read one. Amen. So not only is God able to keep us from stumbling, not only is he going to present us blameless before his presence, before the presence of his glory, God will do this with great joy. This is a mind blow. May this stir our hearts this morning as we have a glimpse of the character and the heart of our God. God is able to keep us from stumbling. He will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That word that's rendered great joy is a strong word. Could be rendered extreme joy. That'd be a little bit awkward to read, right? The point is, though, this is like maximum joy. Like joy is cranked up to an 11 when this happens. We can't hear this enough. Right? This, this is the kind of thing that puts wind in your sails and steel in your spine and rock under your feet because we understand that God has planned salvation, he will accomplish salvation, and he delights to save us. He's not bound. I think sometimes we often think like that, that his love and mercy have kind of put him in a pickle and he's backed in the corner. And we're really not worthy of anything. We're not worthy of saving, which is true. But we feel sometimes as though God is just obligated to rescue us or something. I'm not going to turn us to Luke chapter 15, but I'm just going to say a word or two about it. Luke 15, many know, contains three parables that should always be read together. The first one's about a lost sheep. The second one's about a lost coin. The third one's about a lost son. 
What's the point of that chapter? What's the purpose and the point of all of those parables? It's to teach us about the heart of the Father and of the reality of the joy that exists in heaven when a lost sinner is found. That's the pattern over and over. Lost, found, rejoicing in heaven. You see, the redemption of his people has always, and by always, we mean always, from before time and history were a thing, before space was a thing, the redemption of his people has always been God's plan. So on the one hand, when we say there will be great joy when that plan, when redemption is consummated, on the one hand, we're like, yeah, it makes sense. How could there not be joy when the plan for which the universe exists reaches its culmination. How could there not be joy? And then on the other hand, to say that the Lord himself, the great I am, will be joyful to inherit us takes your breath away. That it will thrill the Almighty's heart when he presents us before the presence of his glory, blameless in his Son. Gives you chills, right? Maybe it doesn't give you chills this morning and don't freak out about that. Maybe you're not feeling it today. May the Lord give you grace that you would. And just remember that even as you're sitting here, if you're feeling it, praise the Lord and thank him that your heart is stirred. If you're sitting here and you're like, bro, I want to feel it, but I'm not, remember that you're saved by Christ and not your feelings about it. But it's a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thought that God will be joyful and his heart will be thrilled when we, his bride, the bride of Christ, will be presented blameless in Christ before the presence of the glory of God and there's rejoicing in heaven. It's good. Let's reflect with me for a minute. Continue to reflect. It's good that we would see things like this in the scriptures. We get a glimpse of what God is like. We get to see his heart in verses like this and in phrases like, with great joy. The God who is majestic. The God who is all-powerful. The God who is completely sovereign. The God who is self-existent, right? He never got started the God who is self-determining, who does everything he pleases. The God who is self-sustaining, who needs nothing. Glorious in every way. His heart is filled with joy in our salvation. The greatest joy will be God's when we're presented blameless in Christ. As joyful as that will be for us, the greatest joy will be the Lord's. If you're like me, certainly in seasons where maybe you're battling anxiety or you're battling melancholy or pessimism or whatever, or you're just struggling against the corruption of the flesh and it's hard, and you're grieved by that fight and by your failure, it can be hard for us to really trust that God loves us this way. It's one of the fundamental battles of the Christian life. 
is the fight for faith, to trust, to simply believe that the Lord really does love me like this and that I really am this secure in him. And this is why this reality that I'm speaking to right now and the things that we are experiencing together, that is not a bad word. This is an experience when we come here. This is why we need God's word. This is why when we open the word together, we need the love and mercy of gr- and grace of God to us in Christ extolled as much as possible that we might be confirmed in the faith. The reality for us, as I've already said, is that we fail and we flounder, we wrestle and lose often. We lament and grieve our weakness and our sin. Our consciences accuse us. The enemy doubles down and accuses us. We buy into the lie from the evil one that God is somehow against us. We question whether he really does want our good and work for our good. Because bad and hard things happen all the time in this fallen world. We are at times intimately acquainted with grief and pain. And so inside, even if we don't say it out loud, inside there are things bouncing around in here. And we think, we say, we feel, God, I, I don't feel like you're for me right now. Or in the struggle against sin, it's like I am such a wretch that, God, you would be justified in condemning me. And deep down, if I was you, I would want to. Because I've blown it way too many times. Saints, here's the thing. We are prone to make a very fundamental error. God speaks of this in the Psalms. Psalm 50, most pointedly. He says, you thought that I, you thought that the I am was one like yourself. You thought... God says that I'm altogether like you. And he's not. See, our love is often weak and cold. And so we often project that upon God. His must be too. Our love ebbs and flows. And so we think God's must too. But praise God, he isn't like us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's the prophet Hosea. You don't need to turn. The words might be on the screen. I'm fine that you just listen. For those that want to read it later, Hosea 11, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. 
I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Then these words, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath, says the Lord. You see, saints, this is how God is. His love for us is not conditioned or predicated upon anything in us. It never has been that way. The constant refrain of the scriptures is the unfaithfulness of God's people and the steadfast love of God in and through it that overcomes our unfaithfulness and rescues us from that. because God isn't like us. Even though we continually stray and then return, even though we continually sin and confess and repent, God is not ashamed of us. It's a strong thing to think about. God is not ashamed of us. Because deep down, you're like, Father, how is it possible when I'm ashamed of me? Our faith is often weak, right? And so here's our experience. Just listen. wonder if you've ever been here. Inside. It's like, Father, I feel like your enemy, but you have said that I'm your child. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, I feel guilty and ashamed, but you have said that I am forgiven on account of Christ. I believe. Please help my unbelief. Father, I feel sinful and weak, but you have said that I am righteous on account of your son. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, I fear that I will not endure to the end. But you have said that you will keep me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, things can be pretty scary right now, and I am often afraid but you have said that all will be well. I believe. Please help my unbelief. Father, I cannot fathom living with you and with my brothers and sisters in a world without sin or pain or evil, but you have said that you will give us a homeland. I believe. Please help my unbelief. This life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, and who gave himself up for us. To whom else would we go other than the Lord?
He has the words of eternal life. And we, for our part, are pilgrims seeking a homeland. We, I know this is true of you. I know this is true of us. We desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God because he's prepared for us a city. He is able to keep us from stumbling and he is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory and he will do that with great joy. That's verse 24. We're now going to turn to verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, we've just been considering how all this is going to culminate in the, the presentation of the saints blameless before God in Christ. This whole redemption thing, you understand this, this whole redemption thing, this plan of God is very much tethered to the glory of God. A lot of times we throw the glory of God out in this very ethereal way. And we're kind of, I think a lot of us are sort of like, I kind of know what that means, but I'm not so sure, you know, that I understand exactly what the glory of God means or for God to be glorified, what that entails. One thing we can say with great certainty is that the one plan of God that has always been his plan is inextricably linked to the praise of his glorious grace for all of eternity. So have that in your mind as we even consider verse 25. So we're going to start, we're going to kind of pull this apart again. God is the only God to the only God, our Savior. He's a Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God is the only God. He's a Savior and Jesus is our salvation. It's very clear that in the mind of the apostle as he points the saints to this word of praise to God in Christ, that this saving work of Jesus is unshakable and has roots that reach into eternity. In other words, God is a planner. For the planners out there, that's one for you, right? On, with all seriousness, here are some good words to put in your mouth. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Those are good words to confess about our God. Pretty strong words. But what is his purpose? He says he's going to accomplish all his purpose. What is his purpose? What's his plan? What is it that he is pleased to do if he does everything he pleases? We use scripture to interpret scripture. Amen? Paul says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. It is this purpose. The mystery of God revealed, it's set forth, it's made known to us, it's a plan in Christ for the fullness of time to unite all things in the Lord Jesus. This plan is the point of this book. The eternal plan of the Godhead accomplished in time and space is what this book testifies about. We do this occasionally. It's always good for us to think about. The plan of God. 
Think with me. God, before the world began, decided that he was going to save a people, and he would save a people through the work of God the Son. He made man uniquely in his image, made a covenant with man that man broke. We were plunged into sin, death, and ruin, and now if we were going to be in right relationship with God forever, if we were going to be righteous and blessed eternally, it would have to come by grace, not our works. So God promised, even in the face of human sin, that a redeemer would come. He would be born of woman, and he would crush the enemy's head. God then chose a man named Abram, told him he was going to make a people out of him, told him that he was going to have one offspring in particular through which the nations would be saved. The gospel was preached to Abraham. God then made a covenant with Moses and the people through him. He gave them a law. The main purpose of that law was to crush them in their sin, to show them their sin and drive them to their atonement and their salvation. As a piece of that covenant with Moses, God gave a priesthood to the people to be their mediators. He gave a sacrificial system to the people to teach them about atonement. What were all those things about? The promised offspring of Abraham who would come and rescue them. God made a covenant with a man named David. He told him that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever, provided that he kept the law, that he would reign in righteousness eternally. Then the words of the prophets about that son of David, that God would raise up for David a righteous branch who would execute judgment and justice and righteousness in the land, that he would be called the Lord is our righteousness, that David would never lack a man to sit on the throne, and that the priests would never lack a man in the presence of God to offer sacrifices forever. There would be one who would come, who would be the servant of the Lord, who would be crushed for the iniquity of his people. Through his obedience, the righteous one would make many to be accounted as righteous. Then the prophet Malachi tells us that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, when this Messiah would come, there would be a forerunner who would be like Elijah. And there's hundreds of years of silence. And then an angel speaks to a virgin and then tells her fiance, it's okay that you marry her. She has conceived by the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a son and you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Simeon takes up this baby who's eight days old, a righteous man in the temple named Simeon, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, God, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then 30 years later, that forerunner named John cries out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he died, the Lamb of God, even a Roman centurion proclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. He rose from the dead on the third day. And here's what the apostles said about that. We bring you the good news that God promised, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Christ from the dead. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's good news. Later, Paul would write about bringing to light the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That mystery, he says, is that Jews and Gentiles would be members of the same body called the church. And that they, Jews and Gentiles, would be fellow heirs and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This 
Paul said, was according to God's eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our God. This is his book. This is his plan to the praise of his glory. This is what he has been doing through history. And he's doing it still. You know that. You realize that. Look around at each other. Like, you can do this. Just look around at each other. Why are we here? Why are we here? It's because God is doing this. He's saving a people. Still. He keeps us from stumbling. We will not fall headlong. For he holds our right hand. And he will present us blameless before him in Christ Jesus. And to this God... On account of all this, be glory, dominion, and authority eternally, right? Before all time and now and forever. Regarding that glory and dominion and authority, he has always had these things. And at the same time, the language of the scripture is that he's worthy to receive these things forever. Both are true. That's what everyone in the book of Revelation is screaming and shouting and praising around the throne of God. Worthy is he who sits on the throne and worthy is the lamb to receive praise and honor and glory and blessing and all these things, right? Now kind of bringing this to to a conclusion. We're thinking about the culmination, the consummation of redemption, the plan of God, the joy of God in it, the praise and the glory of God in it. At the end of all of this, there's going to be a wedding. This wedding is the pinnacle of the history of the universe. This is when Christ's bride, the church, will be presented blameless in the presence of God. That wedding. That is what Jude is writing about in these verses. And Jesus, we're going to think about this wedding for a minute. Jesus told a parable about it. Just track with me as you think about the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and how that is the goal of all things to the praise of the glory of God. Just listen. Matthew chapter 22, 1 to 14. The parable of the wedding feast as it's known. Many may be familiar. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, I mean, even hear that. Could be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The king sent servants out to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. He, he sends other servants, and he says, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention. They went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Obviously, Israel is in view in this. We're not going to talk about that at length right now. We continue on. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Here we have the bringing in of the Gentiles. The nations are now being brought to the wedding banquet. That's you and that's me. Now, and those servants, they went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Then these words, 
But the king came in to look at the guests, and he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Million dollar question. Eternally significant question. What is that wedding garment? What is the wedding garment? How would a person get one? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. Just jot it down. Saints, this is how we understand the scriptures. Okay, this, this is change your life. After this I looked, says John, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Understand, these are the ones coming out of the world that's in bondage to corruption, right? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's what they're wearing. What is the wedding garment? It's that. You don't get in the wedding in your own clothes. The prophet Zechariah wrote about this. He writes of a vision that he had. Zechariah chapter 3, just listen, read it later. Then the angel, says the prophet, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord, who is that? God the Son, right? Second person of the Trinity. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. He's in his own clothes. And the angel, the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's a wedding garment. Revelation 19, 6-9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright 
and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.